The professor and writer Alan Jacobs has commented that Advent is the most complex of the church seasons. As a season of intentional waiting, looking and anticipating, Advent invites the church, invites us to reflect upon what it is that we lack. It highlights the areas of life where we don't yet know the fullness of God's kingdom, where we don't experience the full goodness of Jesus coming again. It reminds us how we are, in our current experience, deprived of full healing of goodness, of justice and peace. At the same time, Advent invites us into the remembrance of hope. We are invited to see that our waiting takes place in the context of expectation. The one upon whom we have bet our lives will not disappoint. Christ will come again. We're invited into sure expectation and as a result, invited into waiting with joy. How can one rejoice in the midst of difficulty? What does it mean to exalt and celebrate in joy, even as we recognize that our experience now is incomplete, that we're looking for something new and better? The season is complex, and reflecting that complexity, the posture of Advent can be difficult. For a number of years now at Church of the Cross, we have had a service of lament just before Advent, in fact. The Sunday before Christ the King Sunday, a Sunday in which there is an opportunity to name and offer to God those areas of life and the world that are marked by suffering and difficulty, those areas where we don't see that Christ is King. This year, Father David shared wonderfully in the sermon, and we had a time of reflection in silence afterward. We were reminded that God invites our lament. For many of us, the idea that we can name our grief and sadness before God is a revelation, new and life-giving truth. We're used to perhaps happy, clappy, optimistic worship, and the idea that God sees us in our sadness is new and good. We need help and reminders that we can worship in a minor key. For almost as long as we have had this service, however, I have also wondered if we might also need a more purposeful service of rejoicing and celebration. We might also need help in worshiping in a major key. We need practice, perhaps, in celebration. A few years ago, a friend and mentor of mine commented to me that, and said, Peter, it is interesting that celebration is one of the stated core values at Church of the Cross, where you're the rector, because I don't think you're very good at celebration. <laughs> Ouch! It stung because it had the ring of truth. I'm not great at joy. And as people living in one of history's great luxury societies, we are very good at what we might call flat contentment. We spend much of our days fine, generally okay with our material needs and concerns provided for, but perhaps anesthetized by entertainment and distraction. Joy is difficult for us, and that is a problem. Because one of the invitations that God seems to have for his people in this season, but at all times, is to enter into the posture of waiting, but to do so with joy, with rejoicing and gladness. To keep up with the phrase that we've been using this season, we might say the people of Advent rejoice 
They wait, but with joy. In our Old Testament reading this morning from Isaiah 65, the call to rejoice and be glad comes to the people of God as a command. The verbs in verse 18 are imperative. The call to make ourselves glad in God to rejoice over him is not this optional add-on. In his book on Christian maturity titled Called to be Saints, Gordon Smith points to joy as the capstone element of life in Christ. Smith points to joy in Christ in the midst of a fragmented world as crucial evidence of faith in Jesus. But that joy is deemed so. A command, a call upon the church and the people of God is curious. We understand joy and gladness to be an emotional state. So the command, be joyful, feels strange. A command to conjure some kind of emotional response akin to the song, don't worry, be happy. Catchy, but not particularly helpful. But in the Bible, the call to joy is less about what it is that the people of God might feel than it is a call about choosing what it is that we will find our delight in. When the Apostle Paul admonishes Christians in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always, he's not saying, don't worry, be happy. Rather, he is encouraging, challenging them to set their focus upon the goodness of God, to delight in his character revealed in Jesus, to factor such happy truths into their current experience of life with all its difficulty, uncertainty, and suffering. Mother Teresa once said, never let anything so fill you with pain and sorrow so as to make you forget the joy of Christ risen. What might it mean for us to hear and to heed this call to joy, to gladness this Advent season? I want to suggest that there is a call upon us to cultivate the joy of the Lord in our waiting. In looking at our reading from Isaiah 65, I think there are three specific ways we might do this. First, by delighting in what God will do. Second, by delighting in what God has done. And third, by delighting in who he is. First, by delighting in what God will do. I remember a number of years ago, a trip that our family took to Lynn Canyon, which is just north of the city of Vancouver, where I'm from. And Lynn Canyon is this remarkable place quite near the city where there are pools and falls, a remarkable river, incredible forests, and amazing opportunities for cliff jumping, diving, swimming. In the summer, it is party central. I remember being there with my young kids, climbing on the rocks, trying to keep them alive in the freezing glacier-fed water. And I remember being surrounded by all kinds of 20-somethings, hanging out, seeing and being seen in their swimsuits, drinking their PBR. (laughs) But on this particular day, I remember one individual stood out who seemed to me to be the happiest person there. This gentleman in his early 50s stood out was a guy by himself, and I noticed at one point him climbing up the rocks to the very highest point you could get to, like over 50 feet up there. And from there, this older 50-something gentleman dove, did like three flips before slipping perfectly into the pool below in this tiny window of safety between the rocks on either side. It was remarkable, a death-defying feat. People were impressed and in awe. He then happily swam over to his lawn chair on the edge of the water, 
sat down and picked up a book. And that book was titled, Heaven is for Real. And I was like, these things are connected. In verses 17 and 18 of Isaiah 65, God's declaration is that he will create a new heavens, a new earth. He will create a new Jerusalem, the city at the center of God's coming kingdom. And that verb create is an important one because in the Bible, this term is used ever only of God's action. When people create, a different term is used. The term here is the same one found in the story of creation in the opening chapters of Genesis. And from there, throughout Scripture, it captures this idea of exclusive divine activity. What is then being declared in the opening verses of our passage is that God is going to do something that only God can do. The people of God are are invited, called to rejoice and be glad in what it is that God is going to do. New heavens, new earth, new creation. And this idea, I think, of divine creation, divine agency brings into view that what we are waiting for is radically different, is radically new. There is a profound discontinuity between what is coming and what it is that we experience today. Look at the descriptions of what it is that God is going to create. Circumstances in which the former things, the failures, the errors of the past will not be remembered. In which time and age are experienced differently, where decay is no longer present. In which the natural order of things, the dog-eat-dog world, has been replaced by a situation of perfect peace and justice. Cumulatively, the picture is one of what one writer names as unqualified flourishing. Radically new, radically different. Something only God can bring about. What we are waiting for as the church is not the culmination of processes that we already see at play. What we are anticipating is not the same reality we now experience, but just a little more just a little more peaceful, a little better. In the 18th century hymn on Jordan's stormy banks, the writer Wright describes it this way. Over all the wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God, the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that faithful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. The language that the prophet uses here in Isaiah 65 suggests this radical in-breaking, invasion by heaven to recreate the world that we now experience. The reality that we are waiting for is so much better than what you and I currently experience and what we can hope to conjure through our own effort. And it is this radical difference, this discontinuity that allows us to rejoice, to have joy in our waiting. Something so much better than we may ask after or we might imagine is coming by God's hand. We're all aware, I suspect, of the sentiment, the waiting is the best part or the anticipation was almost as good as the real thing. That sentiment only makes sense if what we are waiting for is really, really good. 
if it's something we wait for with excitement, if it is better, that produces joy here and now, I can hardly wait. What I would like to encourage you in this morning is a recognition in line with Isaiah 65 that there is something coming, a future that is radically better, radically differentiated from what you now experience. We are looking forward to this act of recreation that only God, the Father of Jesus, the creator of the universe, can accomplish. And it is good. It is beautiful. It is glorious. It is something to which any current suffering pales in comparison. Our experiences now of uncertainty and disappointment, our struggles, our loneliness, our sin, our failure, something new and better is coming. So let us rejoice. A feature of Christian practice, especially in the tradition known as Puritanism, is the contemplation of the eternal. Meditation upon heaven. That 50-something man was on to something. I get that this can seem too otherworldly, leading to someone being so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. But consider the view of the future encapsulated in these practices, meditating on heaven, in contrast with what contemporary writer Noah Millman has described as a loss of the sense of the future. Millman points, in fact, to globally collapsing fertility rates, far below replacement level across cultures and economic realities. And he suggests that for a variety of reasons, supported by much evidence, our current view of the future is largely a doom-laden blank, paralyzing and dreadful. Fixed processes unavoidably working toward an unknown but terrible future. In Jesus Christ, you have something better. In Jesus Christ, there is something radically new that is coming. The cycle of history that we see and suffer will be interrupted. A new heavens, new earth. We can rejoice and be glad in that future now. We can have joy now over the sure, certain, and good things that God will do. Delight yourself in what God will surely do. A second way that we might enter into joy, the joy that God calls us to in our waiting, is by delighting in what God has done or is even now doing. Isaiah 65 emphasizes the newness of what is coming. It's discontinuity, but there are also elements in it of continuity with what we see and experience today. The new city is Jerusalem, a city known and inhabited now. A part of the flourishing that is described is the ways that human labor, something we experience today, will continue but be made more fruitful. The goodness described about houses and plants, these are things are reflective of what we currently experience. What God is going to do, what we're looking forward to is new and different, but glimpses, experiences of it can be known today. That is, we might say the world today is alive with God's presence and the stuff of creation reveals his grace. One of the ways we might cultivate joy is by naming and holding to the blessings of God that are evident to us today those things he's done in the past, and those signs and foretastes we experience now. 
notes and hints of his grace, glimpses of divine and eternal goodness here. The psalm that we prayed just now, Psalm 126, begins with this remembrance of God's action in history, his deliverance, keeping alive the memory of how he brought joy and delight to his people. Elsewhere, the people of God are implored, told, tell, and retell the stories of God's faithfulness and power. For your children, for the generations to come, keep alive the memory of his goodness. Part of our waiting, our looking forward, involves looking back at God's grace and power at work in history, in Exodus, at the cross, in our own lives, that we would remember our waiting is not in vain, that we would wait with joy. And part of our waiting involves looking now to the glimpses of his grace that creation is alive with today. In verses 16, 17, and 18 of the New Testament passage this morning from 1 Thessalonians, the followers of Jesus are implored by Paul, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstance. Those commands are not like free-floating, arbitrary things. They're not there because God is looking for sycophants. They are there because they reflect a reality. They reflect the truth that in every circumstance, the people of God have reason for rejoicing reason for thanksgiving, whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in, the grace of God remains active and evident. It can be named and identified. In my reading, praying over the Psalms over the last few months, I have been struck by the connection made between thanksgiving and entry into experience of the presence of God the connection between naming the grace of God and the experience, the awareness of his presence. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. Naming and celebrating the grace we receive today, however small it might seem, is the avenue toward joy, toward joyfulness in our waiting. May God grant us the eyes to see that we might give thanks and know joy. And the thing about joy is that you cannot be half-heartedly joyful. You cannot be distractedly joyous. You can be happy in distraction, but joy as this deeper and more comprehensive thing speaks of a fixed attention of being captivated. Part of the reason I suspect joy may be difficult for me is that I lead a life filled with distraction. Part of the reason I struggle to see glimpses of God's grace in my own life is that my attention is so deeply divided, spread among competing concerns and entertainments. In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis sternly gives this recommendation. Shut your mouth, open your eyes, and your ears. I wouldn't, I'm not, I don't have anything to say about shutting your mouth. Your mouth. <laughs> but opening our eyes and our ears. I would commend you in these final days of Advent for the season of Christmastide, the practice of focused thanksgiving, removing distraction, even for a moment, that you might enter into joy, the disciplined habit of naming and celebrating out loud the goodness of Jesus in history and in your life today. Recount the things of the past and identify the graces of today. Like, I woke up, I am alive. I am loved by this person. Turn the most basic experiences of goodness toward God in thanksgiving. He is the author of such goodness, the lavish giver of every good gift.
Delight yourself in what God will surely do. Delight yourself in what God has done and is doing. My third encouragement is that we would delight ourselves in who God is. At the end of his earthly ministry, just before he ascends, in John 14, 8, Jesus tells his followers, I will not leave you as orphans. They will wait. They will suffer in that waiting. But they will not wait alone. You and I do not wait alone. And in that, there is joy. Within our passage from Isaiah 65 and its description of what is coming, the goodness of it all, there are these subtle hints of God's character and relationship with his people. In verse 24, there's this vision of immediate and intimate relationship with God. Before they speak, I will hear them. In verse 22, there is the language of the chosen ones. There is a picture here of this future moment of God's intimacy, of his desire for his people to be with them. In Jesus, by the sending of his Holy Spirit, these promises, future, have been made real and effectual today. You and I are waiting. We are on pilgrimage, looking forward to all that God will do. But there is joy found now, today in the gift of his presence with us. In our gospel reading from John 3, John the Baptist points to the joy that the friend of the bridegroom has upon recognizing the voice of the bridegroom, joy at his coming. Not so much joy at what the groom might now accomplish, but joy simply at his presence, joy by virtue of who it is and that he is drawn near. The season of Advent is most kind of surface level understood to be a preparation for Christmas preparing to mark out the gift of Jesus and his incarnation. More deeply, it is understood to be a season of expectation regarding his second coming, the goodness of his soon coming kingdom. But there is a third dimension to the season as well, a recognition of his coming now, of his daily visitation, his presence with us and for us today. Some of you are in the fight of your lives. You face real and profound uncertainty and struggle. In the year ahead, 2024, looks to be challenging for us as a nation and for the world. In so many ways, our current experience stands in stark relief against the hope of what God will do. We are called to wait faithfully and to persevere in difficult times. But we do not wait alone. We wait with one who is present by his spirit, who has chosen and called us to himself, who desires and gives intimacy, who brings joy by his very presence. And in scripture, the highest gift that God gives is the gift of himself, the gift of his presence. And it is, in fact, the gift of his presence that assures us of all the other goodness. In Revelation 7, there is this picture, very much in line with Isaiah 65, of this future moment. No more death, no more suffering, no more tears. But it is bound up with the lamb being in the midst of his people, with the lamb, Jesus being the shepherd of his people, present to him. It is the gift of his presence 
that is the highest gift. It is the gift of his presence that brings us the greatest joy. And that presence is not given begrudgingly. Verse 19 makes this note of the joy of the Lord over Jerusalem. And it's part of this extended theme in this section of Isaiah. The joy that the Lord has in his people. The joy that he will have, the delight that he will have in the full intimacy of what is coming. The ultimate gift of God is himself and he longs to give it. That hymn that I quoted from earlier from Jordan Spang culminates with this stanza that sees our hope most richly captured in the gift of God's presence. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed. For I will see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. The value of the practice of thanksgiving that I just mentioned is not simply that we would cultivate an awareness of the positive things of life. It is that it is connected to the drawing near of the Lord. It's a means of entering into God's life of joy and delight, of sharing in his joyous presence. Those of you who are eagle-eyed may have noticed that today's candle in the Advent wreath is pink. That's not because they ran out of purple wax at the candle factory. It is rather to mark that this third Sunday of Advent is Gaudete Sunday. And Gaudete is the Latin word for rejoice. In the midst of this season of longing, waiting, preparation, and penitence, the church pauses today to delight ourselves in the Lord, to rejoice in all that he will do, in all that he has done and is doing, and to rejoice in him who is our joy. People of God, people of Advent, let us rejoice and be glad. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.